purpose of cybersecurity. Here are your co-hosts and cybersecurity experts, Brian Horning, Reginald Andre, and Randy Bryan. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Security Squawk Podcast, where we help you understand what's going on out there in the world of cybersecurity and how it relates to your business. My co-hosts are here with me, Randy Bryan and Reginald Andre. How are you guys? Nice and warm still. Oh, don't even go. Oh, dude, it is uh, 15 degrees in Central Texas right now. So um, I'm warm, but it is pretty cold outside. And hey, at our audience, does, it, does the guy in the audience yell free bird right before we come on? Because I swear I thought I heard him say free bird right before we came on. Just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's like one of those like songs where people think they know the words and then they make right. everyone up. It's funny. Right. Um, I think he says, I love you, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So today we have a, an interesting topic, related topic that we're going to get, get into. Um, one is some ransomware attacks against nonprofits. And we're going to focus on that because there's some interesting um, tidbits or, or things that come up with non, these nonprofits. Um, and then we're going to dive into a deeper discussion about data protection and some of the common missteps we see a lot of businesses out there. And a lot of, you know, employees, uh, quite frankly, you know, are guilty of this. So, you know, while this is important for business owners, if you don't own a business and you just work somewhere, listen in because you may be doing some of the things that we identify that are, you know, causing your, your company to have more risk. Uh, and potentially have more data that can be used in extortion attempts. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, extortion numbers and the amount of data or the, the quality of the data really determines how much you get, you're going to have to pay. So um, why I point that out is you're going to see these nonprofits. Some of them, you know, do have a lot of money, but some of them don't. Um, and what we're seeing is a trend, a correlation between how much a company has to pay and how much data the hackers were able to get their hands on. So we're going to talk about strategies to mitigate that as well later on in the show. So stay tuned. But before we do, remember, share the show. We don't do ads. We don't bore you with uh, annoying content that's not related to what we're talking about right here. So help us out, help the algorithm, help other people find this content by just commenting down below on maybe some things we're talking about. Um, we do see those comments live. And if we see something interesting, we might throw it up on the screen. So if you want to interact with us, that's a good way to do it. Um, rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. Leave a review. That always helps us out. And then if you see us on social media, <clears throat> click that little share button. And you YouTube people, you know what to do subscribe and, and like the uh, video. So, all right, guys, let's get into it. We have a, a kind of like an article we want to highlight and discuss here uh, that we found uh, from uh, a news outlet called The Record, and it has to do with uh, a ransomware attack on Water for People, and that's a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving access to clean water. And the ransomware gang uh, Medusa, 
targeted the organization demanding a $300,000 ransom and threatening to publish stolen data. Despite the attack, the nonprofit's operations and financial systems remained uncompromised. The article also touches on broader issues of ransomware attacks on nonprofits and NGOs, citing examples and trends in the sector. So that's what we're going to deep dive, excuse me, wow, a little bit on today. Um, The first question I want to ask, and I'll I'll toss it to uh, either of you, but um, what are implications of ransomware attacks on nonprofit organizations like Water for People? Well, uh, we helped a client or attempted to help a client back in December that was a nonprofit. And the, the biggest thing that nonprofits run by is donors. And when we started to help them, I think a couple of days later, the um, actual hacker reached out to them and says, hey, you know, I gave you 48 hours to, you know, pay the ransom. If you, if you don't take this seriously and pay up or communicate with me, I'm going to start going after your donors. Um, and that was a really scary situation for them. So I think that's that's the biggest implementation of of a ransomware attack for nonprofit organizations is them now going after the donor list and just trying to either send them like a phishing email to say, hey, this is you know our new um, campaign that we're doing or the end of the year giving, um, because that's exactly what happened with with the case I, I just mentioned. Yeah, you're that that's so so uh, such a great point, Andre, and you know imagine the donors are the lifeblood of a nonprofit. And so if the, uh, if the donors are cut off, then lifeblood goes away. Also imagine a donor, your, your donors are giving and imagine if they start getting harassed by the criminals, man, are they going to want to deal with the comp with a nonprofit that's constantly causing all these issues um, with cyber criminals um, because you know they're involved. So that's a that's another big implication. Um, you know, there's a lot of this stuff is really keeping nonprofits up up at night because I'd say uh, a second really big implication is is the lo- the loss of funds, if you will, because like in this particular case, they had a donation from a very large prominent individual. Um, of 15 million, and then boom, they get hit by a cyber attack um, asking for $300,000. And I would just ask for the nonprofit people that are watching in, could your nonprofit handle, you know, paying out $300,000? I mean, that could be, um, you know, mission ending. At the at, at worst, at best, it's $300,000 taken away from helping people um, with your mission. So those are a couple more implications there, Brian. Many times with these nonprofits, um, these funds have to be used specifically. Um, they can't just be used willy nilly to pay a ransom. Right. Um, in this case, they may have gotten that $15 million um, dollar donation, but it was to specifically target a specific country for a specific problem. Um, so that's another thing that it has to be thought of is you can't just go in, it's called unrestricted and restricted funds is what the term is. So, right. um, yeah, good point. So how did uh, Water for People respond to the Medusa ransomware attack and what steps are they taking to prevent future incidents? 
it it says they brought in the top incident response firms. No, they brought um, in my company. What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, nothing. nothing. <laughs> um, as well as our insurance company, they say they're hardening our systems with our security team to prevent future incidents. And I guess the, um, you know, how did they respond? They also came out and said, well, it's old data. It's old data. And so it's from before 2021. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but, you know, I've got a different social security number. Since <laughs> 2021, right. And a different email address, a different ad. Like saying that it's two year. What is it now? Three year old data. Like so like that's not I mean, I guess the good side of that would be if they had that data in a particular system that they could identify, they could say, OK, it was this system that was hit. But that's still important data. Yeah, I look forward to us doing an update on this in three months and then for them to say, oh, well, we thought it was 2021, but it's really, you know, it was stuff from yesterday as well. Yeah, you know, and this um, that's that made me think, Andre, when you said that this is a very important nonprofit, like I would categorize it as an important nonprofit. They are, you know, building wells for people that don't have access to water, which is one of the most excruciating parts of poverty, not having access to water. So. We hope in three months they've they've responded, they've moved on, and that they're still there doing their mission. You know, three hundred thousand dollars. That's gosh, that's probably ten thousand wells or something. You know what I mean? Or five thousand wells or something crazy like that. So moving right in, kind of what you're saying there. What makes nonprofit organizations attractive targets for ransomware gangs? You kind of alluded to it in your last statement there, Randy. So why don't you kind of expand on what you, you were saying about large nonprofits. Um, I'm, I don't know specifically which part you're uh, focusing in on here. Well, but, that's uh, part you just said, like you would, you said you would consider them a large, like a, a serious nonprofit, right? So, yeah. So, okay. A few, I would say a few things. So I think that this, this particular nonprofit is mission critical and probably right. the donors are very passionate about this particular nonprofit. And so, if I'm a ransomware gang, I'm like, wow, this is an important nonprofit with impact, you know, with passionate donors. There's lots of money there. That's a cha-ching, you know, for uh, for that. Also, if they can get a hold of the donor data, both to sell it, uh, the ransomware gangs, both to sell the data or to exploit the data. So if they got a hold of the, the, the person who gave the $15 million donation, got a hold of her data, sent her some sort of, you know, phishing email to get into her systems, then they can ransomware, uh, you know, a really large fish. So, oh, and I would say also what makes them uh, not, you know, attractive targets. A lot of a lot of nonprofits are living from check to check, if you will. Um, that's one of the reasons that they're so effective. You know, you can give a nonprofit a million dollars and it'll take an NGO 20 million dollars to do the same thing. Because they know how to they know how to work on less, but if they're working on less, they may not have good cybersecurity systems in place. And uh, Brian, if you, you could share the screen for a moment with that link I sent you. But another thing with why nonprofits are so attractive is because they do need to report back to the public as far as you know their revenue and where things go. Their entire budget is on the internet. Um, so here we looked. At, I just did a quick Google search. So it's from 2020. But nevertheless, their total revenue um, in 2020 was $22 million. 
So this is just advertising that, not to say that, like you said, they could still be living, doing check to check, but $22 million flowing through your hand. If I'm an attacker, I'm going to go after you because I know you have some type of money. You can't tell me you're broke. Uh, I know you got money, you know, so. So did I answer your uh, question that you were uh, asking? I guess you did. You moved on. Good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So moving right along can let's discuss the broader trend of ransomware attacks on, on the nonprofit sector we talked about this a little bit in the green room um you know as you know we as, and i think i talked about at the beginning of the show like we can correlate data that that, that says <clears throat> the more data you have right so as we're we're going to get into a topic here in a minute about data retention and, and really what what are, what are the legalities or when should you kind of almost like ethically or morally start to delete information um, because when you're attacked if a, if a cyber criminal has a year's worth of data versus 10 years worth of data that's going to impact and i know people that have like you know they've saved every email since they started their company back in 1999 Mm-hmm. Right. And and I've mentioned this before, like if you're that person, you're a, a ripe target for a cyber criminal because there has to be, you know, some data, albeit it might be old data, but your social security number doesn't change over time. Right. So if somehow, some way your social security number is in your email somewhere and, you know, prior to. 2007 nobody thought about this stuff mm-hmm. people freely emailed information like it was the most secure thing on the planet mm-hmm. i mean people still do it today and we and we know it uh, credit card numbers are, are sent over email and text messages and this is, is stuff that most people should understand that you, you can't be doing this stuff but it still happens because people don't realize what even the smallest amount of personal data could lead to down the road if it mm-hmm. falls in the wrong hands. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, we know that if you have 15 years of data sitting in a drive on a server somewhere or sitting in your email, your number is going to be higher when these cyber criminals start asking for money when they're extorting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the risk that that organizations have. So. What other trends do you say with with this stuff? Well, we just know that they're they've become one of the most attacked sectors, if you will, um, over the past couple of years. Um, I know sometime during 2023 they made the top five. I don't know if they're at the top five right now, but um, I know that it has been a trend just to the growing number of attacks that have been on the nonprofit sector. And if you look at the number of nonprofits in America it's it's like a million plus and so the majority of those aren't large nonprofits with large budgets and money to pay for cybersecurity the majority of those are going to going to fall into the scrappy category who are getting by on a shoestring doing amazing things but then don't have the money to put into cybersecurity so i think that goes back with this broader trend of a growing number of attacks in that sector and Medusa has been out. I remember when we just started hearing about it. Uh, I think Ryan was on the um, show at that time, and we were kind of making fun of the name Medusa. If you yeah. recall, 
So they've been out for, for at least. Oh, yeah. They've been around for a few years. Yeah. 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 Um, so how does, you know, kind of dovetailing off of what you said there, Randy, how does the public's perception of a nonprofit change following a cyber attack and what can be done to maintain trust? Well, that's a great question. I think as attacks become more prominent and we've seen more and more attacks and more and more people have witnessed one, we're less likely to be judgy about it. Um, so that's kind of working in their favor that they're not going to instantly get judged and blackballed and, you know, no one wants to do business with them anymore. But what can be done to maintain trust? One pre-attack if you haven't had one is to get cyber secure um, you can make that part of what you say to the public and to your donors you know hey we got audited we're doing these things we have these things in place where you know there are certain frameworks that don't even really matter as far as cybersecurity go that just sound good but i'm talking about doing something substantial and then post post attack is being very forthright with everything. Don't say stuff, you know, hey, nothing to see here, move along, but just be very forthright. It's kind of like getting a bad review on Google, right? Every every company gets a bad review on Google. And as a as a company, you don't want to respond in a way that makes you look like that review. Yep, Passion, you know, re, uh, response, and then that way that you don't look like you're, you know, whatever. Anyway, what I'm saying here, same thing, is be open, forthright, and honest about it. That's a great way to build trust. So didn't mean to go on and on there. I kind of did. <laughs> yeah, the internet didn't like it because you froze. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, any thoughts on this before we kind of move on here? No, no, we, we're good. We can move on. All right, so <clears throat> we've, we, we dove into kind of like, nonprofits what happened use this uh water for people as a as an example of a larger nonprofit that gets hit and what we know is typically with nonprofits they suffer from this term that's being thrown around called excessive data retention um and what excessive data retention is is it's it, it's the vulnerability of companies uh, to cyber attacks due to over retention of data. And there are legal consequences that go along with this because, you know, there are laws in the books on, you know, how long or how, how much data you can retain before it becomes kind of like egregious. Um, and when there's an unauthorized data access, this impacts, you know, individuals or companies uh, because your data is now exposed. So, um, you know, what we're going to talk about today and what, the rest of the show, we're going to kind of emphasize the importance of data retention policies. And we're going to give you some strategies to protect personal data and maintain privacy um, and make sure you're, you're not somebody who can fall victim to something like this. Um, so first question, I'll kind of throw it out there. I'll throw it up on the screen here in a second. Um, but um, what are the primary risks associated with excessive data retention for businesses and individuals? What are some of the things that come to your guys' mind off the top? 
Well, we've, we've talked about in over the years, many different um, cyber attacks. And when they disclose what information they have, they go back from 2012 to 2023. And it's just a, such a long time span. So you just really open up yourself to more risks because um, many times you don't even like need that data as you just mentioned, um, uh, Brian. I've always heard the rule of seven because you know, um, you're, and of course there's some industries that you need longer, but like I know here in South Florida, we have condominiums and they have to keep everything for seven years. And of course with the IRS, your accountants normally always recommend seven. Um, but when you start seeing some of these companies and they just keep stuff for way lo longer and like usually for no good reason, um, it's, they just really open themselves to more risks of, um, of this data going. Because as Randy says, social security's number don't change. I've had my same you know, uh, bank account with my same routing number and same checking number since I was eight, uh, probably since I was about 20. So a lot of the things don't change. Randy, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm muted. Sorry about that. Just just also when you have data that's that old, maybe somebody sent you something in 20 stinking 12 that would now be valuable to a criminal that you were gonna delete and you forgot, you know, um, or something along those lines. So there's a risk there, just not knowing what's out there, like say in your email or in your data, um, I'm specifically thinking of email, um, but that's a, you know, data you don't know about. And I was thinking about this when you were talking, Andre, is with AI now, if they can connect to your account and give AI access to it, they can go through all of those emails, build basically a train the AI on all of that data and then be able to spit it back out. Credit card numbers, account numbers, people you talk to, how you talk, your tone of your emails, like all that stuff is valuable to them. Yeah. So how does over retention of data increase a company's vulnerability to cyber attacks? We touched on this a little bit, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it because we got like four more questions to blow through. Um, but what are you, anything you guys want to add here, um, besides what I already kind of mentioned, which is the increase of the demand that can happen, uh, when, when they ask for money, anything else? Yes. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the pipeline, a pipeline attack from about, what was that like a year and a half ago where, um, they used an old like VPN um, which a VPN account, which had been, um, the, the credentials for this user were leaked onto the internet. Um, you know, so something like that could happen with your old data. There's, there's stuff in there that they could use with AI to triangulate some form of an, of an attack. And so that that's why one of the reasons why it does increase vulnerability, the more data that you have. You're, it's more valuable to the criminals the more the more data that you have um so that's my that, that would be my thoughts on that Andre nope I'm good oh good all right so let's discuss the legal liabilities companies face when they retain data for too long mm -hmm. I'm not a lawyer neither is anybody on the show <clears throat> but we do have experience 
fine lawyers on TV. <laughs> I mean, I I will make a confession. Back in the day, so we're talking ten years ago, uh, we would keep, keep backups of of four companies, like because we were break fix back then. Um, they would, which means they would break something would break. They'd bring it to us. We'd fix it. We would and keep you'd come uh, with your trunk and slam it, right? <laughs> exactly. And you know, I started thinking about that. I'm like, wow, that's a huge risk. And you know, they're not paying for that that for us. So why would we put ourselves at risk, them at risk by keeping old data like that? And we don't do that. We don't even keep it for a minute anymore. So, um, you know, your legal liability could be if you're keeping old data. Of, of customers of your vendors or something like that, that could be used against them. Then we turn around and sue you um, because the bad guys got the information from you. Yeah. Most states have privacy laws at this point that stipulate how long a business can legally retain PII. And, mm-hmm. um, and not only that, but you can't, you got, you got to protect it too. That's the other piece. Like a lot of these laws say you have to protect it, which means you can't just leave it flapping in the wind for lack of a better term in your email. Andre, any, any thoughts on this before we move on? Um, I, I have some points, but I don't know if that's going to be part of your question. So I'll wait to the end. You can see the questions are up in the. Oh, they are. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Check it out. All right. So um, if you want to jump back to that, let me know. Uh, so moving on, what steps can individuals take to protect their personal data from being compromised due to over-retention? This is an interesting question for me. Like, how can people who give their data to a company or to a nonprofit or whatever ensure that their data is protected? What are things they can do, say, ask or check on? So we actually had a conversation with a client yesterday and they're using Salesforce and um, Salesforce is uh, basically telling them that they're going over, uh, I think they're going over like two terabytes of data and they're going to start charging more if they don't do like a, what we call it, like a data dump. So in this case, what we're going to be doing for this client is once that data goes into, because it's data that they need because they're a financial service uh, company. So it's data that they need, but only for like auditing or a rare case, like very, very small percentage that they have to keep it for about seven years. So what we're going to be doing for them is um, we're going to be taking this data and then from there, we're going to uh, archive it where we're going to make it like a what is called like a read only. So no one can tamper with the data. And then in addition to that, we're going to encrypt it. Um, and this way, if God forbid they ever did get some type of attack, and the attackers have the um, the data, it's going to be ones and zeros, and they won't be able to see anything um, from that. So that's what we're going to be doing to protect their data, um, even if they have an over-retention, because I don't believe they want to delete the data ever. And, and, and I, another point, too, is we, we're seeing more of this, too, because now data is so cheap. You know, you got a, a terabyte of hard drive, or now everything's in the cloud. And, you know, with 365 and so forth like that, um, customers don't even like care. I remember back in the days when the server 
hard drive was getting full and now the client has to go like, all right, we haven't worked for this client in over five years and they're happy. We don't think they're ever going to come back at us and sue us or anything. Let's go ahead and delete this. And that just saved 200 gigs. And we would give clients like a tree file, if you guys remember that, where we would run the software and then it would kind of just show where all the file, the biggest files are. And then the client would decide, do you want to keep it or do you want to just delete it? And I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I have some no, thoughts individually. Go ahead, share them because I'm going to end the question. So go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So from an individual standpoint, um, in a lot of ways, you, you don't, you don't have control over your data once you give it away. I know there's some laws in place to protect the individuals and companies have data policies. So you can check into that. But, but, but me personally, I would limit the amount of data you give uh, to a company. Um, we're talking individuals again here. I would, um, me personally, I like to cancel all my credit cards at least once a year. So, you know, back in the day, like things like seven or eight years ago, all the credit cards at Target got leaked. And I'm like, I don't care because I already canceled them all because I cancel all my cards once a year. If I'm using uh, an account to purchase, I don't save my information like my like my card and stuff like that. And then go freeze your freeze your credit accounts. Um, that way, if that information, which is probably you should assume it's already out there, they try to open some account somewhere in your name. They can't. Um, so that would be some things that I would say that individuals could do to protect their personal data from being compromised. Also, if you guys ever have like a Google account or AOL account that you no longer use, but it's still open, close them. Um, there's no reason to keep them open. And there's even an option um, where even if you want to keep the account, I know with Google, you can actually say, you know, delete my browsing history or delete, you know, whatever information you have for me. So that that's another option too on the individual side. Yeah, I'll just start by just kind of breaking it down to where I think we're at in the world with all this stuff. And I think step one for most individuals is you got to give a crap about your data because a lot of people just do things like sign up for apps and sign into things on Facebook and they want to, you know, know what their, you know, three, you know, 30 things are that are going to be for 2024 and they download some app and give it access to all their information in Facebook and don't realize or don't care that they're doing that. Um, that's where it's got to start is awareness that you're giving a lot away when you do a lot of these things and the onus is on you and you have to understand that <clears throat> the government is not putting laws in place. Although we're starting to see that change ever so slightly requiring these companies to either, you know, be more upfront about what they're taking from you, what they're storing, how long they're storing it for. But you also have to understand, especially in the United States, you're up against companies that lobby hard to not to have to do these things uh, for a lot of different reasons. So like Randy said, if you want to read the privacy policy, you probably should even though most people aren't going to take the time because it's a long legal document. Um, there's a lot of people out there who read these privacy policies for you. There's YouTube channels. There's a lot of resources on the internet that if you just want to know how a certain company handles your data, you can probably find it without having to read through a big, long legal privacy policy, but you got to start doing something. 
that's my that's my advice. When you talked about lawmakers and, and lobbyists and things like that, I just pictured even my doctor's office where they still he's a little he's still old school, although they're starting to go digital, but they still have that wall of charts. And yeah. they, you know, and, and it's where people probably haven't seen he they haven't seen them in like 10 years. But if you take that file out and you open it, social security number, date of birth, all of that, you know? So what are some effective data hygiene practices that both individuals and companies can adopt? <clears throat> I know you guys laughed at my answer the last time, but whenever you can give fake data, give fake data. There you go. I don't give if if you don't really need my date of birth, but you're asking it for me to hit the next button or something like that. Well, all right, I'll give you a different date of birth. Yeah, and I think one thing and, I want to point out is is where we're at in the world with some things, and and why why I agree with you on the fake data is because cyber criminals are compiling a and it's just not cyber criminals; it's also legitimate companies. But they're compiling and they're buying massive amounts of data. And the thing I want to make you aware of is like the case for burner phones, right? Like why would you have a burner phone or some text messaging enabled number that you use to sign up for apps and services and things like that instead of actually using your real cell phone? Because when your cell phone provider gets hacked, and they have your name and number associated with the phone number, then they cross-reference that phone number that you used to sign up for your website and you thought you were being slick, but you actually used your real phone number. That's how this stuff is going to play out in the future. They're going to correlate your phone number with another hack and they're going to figure out who you are and they're going to be able to target you. And if you don't think that this is happening now and this is where it's going for the future, mark my words. This is where it's going. Any thoughts on that, guys? <clears throat> the case for burner phones? <laughs> There's even on the credit card side, uh, I forgot the name of it, but it's basically, I know our clients use it to pay bills, um, but it's basically like a, a one-time or a pre-authorization type of card where you, you put in a virtual number of credit card provided by the bank you authorize that certain amount. And if it tries to do like an automatic, you know, some type of reoccurring monthly reoccurring charge, and if it's over a penny, it gets blocked. So th th there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Randy, any thoughts before we go to our last question? No, good. good. All right. So how can companies ensure compliance with evolving data privacy regulations? Well, if you're sorry, Randy, I'm sorry. I've been talking. Oh, no. And me too, man. So I want you to go first. And if you if I, yeah. I was gonna say the same thing. So if you're in the industry that you have to have some type of compliancy and you don't have a compliance officer or an outsource, um, you know, someone outsource to tell you what you should be doing and need to be doing. That's your first step. If you're if, if you're in the industry that's regulated. Because yeah. that person will then, like uh, going back to that client that I, I had that conversation yesterday morning, although we do their cybersecurity and we help them with their compliance, but them being um, financial services and they deal a lot with um, with uh, small micro loans, that's not my expertise per se. So that person now says, hey, Andre, 
this is the requirements. They've read all the regulations and know everything. And then they say, it's your job now to make sure that that happens. Yeah, I would. I was just going to say, um, you may want to consult with your lawyer, your your peer group, your licensing agency, because it's going to start with identifying whether or not you are under certain laws. You know, there are certain laws like we're in Texas. We have certain laws here. If data is, you know, is breached, they cover everybody. Um, but then most of the laws are going to cover specific in industries and there's a lot of them. Um, but you need to find out from, you know, your your licensing group, your lawyer. Um, you need to find out if you're under those uh, rules or not. Why do you need to find out? Well, because because once you find out, well, then you need to move towards getting compliant. Right. And so if you're not if you don't know in the first place, well, then can I ensure compliance? You're not you don't even know anything. So you got to know. Right. A lot of this starts with identifying first. And know? the reason I ask that is because I would say, you know, take this show as your warning that in the very near future, most laws and regulations that come out on cybersecurity, assuming thing the trend continues to go in the direction that we're seeing it, most companies are going to have to understand what their governance is. And that's what Randy explained. Governance means you know what laws and regulations you need to follow. You've identified these things. So you've either worked with somebody who is trained as like, you can work with a CISO, you can hire a virtual CISO, to, or you can hire a lawyer to help you understand like what you're responsible for. Right now, businesses are getting away. They have the luxury of saying, oh, we didn't know. And they bury their head in the sands around a lot of this stuff. And they claim ignorance. And they think that that's going to get them off. And in the past, it has. But things are changing. And things are changing quickly. And if you're not aware of things like FTC safeguards or SEC regulations when it comes to this stuff, um, you can't plead ignorance anymore because this stuff is out there and these are on the books. Um, and that's going to come through in other industries that are regulated in healthcare. Uh, it's also going to come through in state and local laws that you have to understand what we are telling you you have to do around data protection. And you can't come when something bad happens, you can't complete ignorance and, and think you're going to get off easy. It's not working that way now. And it's not going to work that way for most businesses within the next three to five years. So get prepared. That's why we're doing this show. <clears throat> um, there's only one last thought I have around this, guys, that we didn't talk about. I think Andre touched on it, and that's why it's kind of been sitting in the back of my head a little bit. But just in respect to data retention before we wrap up, I just want to mention like there's also a cost like your operational costs increase when you have all this data, whether you realize it or not. Um, it's going to cost you more to perform things like backups. Um, it's going to cost you more in storage costs. So having a regimen where you're going through data and doing something with it, whether it's just deleting it, whether it's archiving it some other way, um, 
is going to impact your bottom line in a positive way if you are disciplined enough to handle this stuff. Um, if you're not and you just let this stuff build up, well, it seems like it's not harming you or you're not losing any money. The amount of inefficiency and the amount of overages that you're going to pay, especially if you live in the cloud, are going to cost your business and it's going to impact your bottom line in a negative way if you don't pay attention to this stuff. So that's just one thing I wanted to throw out there about the cost of retaining Good data point. too long. Mm -hmm. Good point. Any thoughts on that outside? We're good? Yeah, we're good. Oh, good. All right. So that's, uh, that's the show for today, folks. Remember, help us out. Share the show. Hey, we got 75 subscribers on YouTube, and we don't even, like, promote that thing. So um, I looked at it, looked at, it as, looked at that today, and I thought, oh, wow. I was like, actually, people are subscribing. So we appreciate the 73 or 75 of you that subscribe. We're looking for more. Thanks, Mom. Um, what's that? I said, thanks, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, moms and uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, but we'll see everybody next week. And uh, stay safe out there. Share the show.